Welcome to Top Talk, where we take important conversations to the cross of Christ. I'm your host, Jonathan McFadden, and I'm here with three pastors who lead predominantly Black congregations and organizations. The nation is reeling after the slaying of George Floyd in Minneapolis, with cries for justice coming from believers and non-believers alike. Today, we're going to talk about the intersection of the Bible and social justice and how the church should respond in times like these. I'm joined today by Bishop Alfred Jackson, pastor of Tabernacle of Praise Church International in York, South Carolina, Bishop Kirkland Smith, pastor of New Hope Christian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and the Reverend Dr. Tony Barr, Executive Secretary Treasurer of the General Baptist Convention of North Carolina. Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. How are we today? Blessed. Wonderful. Well, God bless you. Excellent. All right. So we're going to go ahead and dive in. I know people are itching to hear your perspectives about what's happening um, nationwide right now. So let's just get started. Somebody break down biblical justice. What is it and what is it not? Well, I think I'll give a stab at that. Um, As you know, I've been dealing with this for a few weeks now and doing some, some reading um, justice is making is setting things right, setting wrongs right, um, and so you deal with whose perspective of right. So we're Christians, um, so of course then we want to discover what God's perspective of right is. So when we deal with biblical justice and setting wrongs right uh, in society. Uh, we look to God's perspective. So biblical justice then would focus in on what God says about justice and injustice and how God feels about justice and injustice. Uh, So biblical justice is looking to the scriptures to find out what the Bible says from God's perspective of what justice is in society as we relate to people, as we relate to one another. First of all, um, the Bible says, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. But remember, he says all men. So as Christians, we don't want to just deal with Christians. Uh, we want to deal with everyone because we set the standard in the world. So we, we look to God to find out what he says in, his, in the Bible, uh, and we interpret it correctly, uh, rightly using the principles of interpretation to understand what God says about justice. And we deal with it from God's perspective. And when you look at justice, um, I saw something today about civil justice, economic justice, social justice. All of these things are dealt with in the scriptures. Amen. If, if I could add to that, um, even from a perspective where maybe someone doesn't know the Bible that well, I, I think probably a good portion of Americans are familiar with just simply the Ten Commandments. If we look at the Ten Commandments, we'll see justice right there in the Ten Commandments. We see how God says we should direct ourselves towards him, how we should worship and interact with him, how we should honor, respect, and reverence him. And then the Ten Commandments switches, and we go from how we act towards God to how we act towards people because of God. And so we see this justice there, that we're not to kill, that we're not to, to steal, we're not to you know, commit and violate uh, one another. So uh, along with exactly what Bishop Jackson just said, I, I would just add to that just a simple 
looking at someone's reading the, the very basic Ten Commandments, and there's a lot more to what we call the law than just the Ten Commandments, but mm -hmm. just simply there that God just takes just a few for himself, and then the majority of what's left is how we should do just towards one another. Yeah, I'll add to that too. Um, one of the things that comes to mind for me that I often think of when I think of justice, um, biblical justice, is seeing um, the world, seeing how we approach the world um, through the lens of our Christian worldview. I think that sometimes we have a tendency to forget that as Christians, we kind of compartmentalize our faith sometimes. Um, and we have our church face, we have our, our societal face, we have our work face. And, and, and while it's important that we know how to transition in each of those places and how to conduct ourselves, it's also important to know that we must have a premise for how we approach the world. And if we are Christians, if we're believers, then our perspective comes from the perspective of a Christian worldview. And as a result of that, it alleviates some of the other behaviors and other things that might be sanctioned in other uh, uh, ideologies when we begin to look at our world through the lens of who we say we are and what we believe. So let's talk about that kind of in the reverse then, because some people may say that justice is an eye for an eye, um, but our belief system teaches something incredibly different. So let's talk about what justice, biblical justice is not. Whoever wants to take that. <laughs> well, it's not retaliation. Sure. It's not an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's not you, I killed, you killed my cat, I'm gonna kill your dog. Um, the Bible plainly points out to us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, because God is a just God and God sees, God sees everything that happens in this world. And so God teaches us to love, now that's, that's sometimes difficult for the human being, but at Bishop Smith talked about the Christian worldview. I have to remember who I am and who I serve. And so I am not, not just, when I say who I am, I'm not just Christian in name. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, born from above. So I don't just carry the name Christian, the, the Spirit of God has created a new person in me. He's come to live in me. I'm born again. And His Spirit lives in me to make me live out the life of God in my life, to live God's life out through me. So I remember that I am born again of the Spirit of God. My mind has changed. My perspective has changed. So whereas before Christ, I may have done, I may have retaliated. Now, in Christ, I, I, no, I, I can't, I, justice is not retaliation, it's not paying back. You know, justice is setting things right. <laughs> setting things right is not always paying back because when you, when you retaliate, then they may cause another retaliation. I mean, someone else may want to add to that, but yeah. Bishop, I think one of the things that you just said that I think is so important is that justice is not retaliation. Um, I think what sometimes people kind of um, kind of get to a place where they kind of confuse the two is there is a huge difference in retaliation and accountability. Mm -hmm. And we have to move to a place to where people are held accountable, mm -hmm. but in holding them accountable, it does not mean that we are to retaliate, an eye for an eye, two for a two. Um, we have to make sure that we're moving to a place 
of where we are as leaders holding people accountable for their behaviors, for their actions. And when those actions and behaviors do not line up with what we know to be the way of Christ, since that's who we say we are, then we have to be held accountable for that. Um, no matter how much I love you, if you are wrong, that I have to tell you the truth in love mm-hmm. that you are wrong. And I think that sometimes we we, we, we confuse the two. And, and as a result of us not always having clarity on that, we sometimes back off of holding people accountable for fear that they may misconstrue our accountability as judgment or as retaliation, when the reality is, is that if we never have accountability, then we won't have anything to 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 have as a premise for us moving forward to a better day and doing things right. If, if I can add one more piece to that, uh, especially I'm still, the way you ask the question is bouncing around in my head, but what is it not? Um, a- along with what, what both my brothers have said, I would add to it, one thing that is not is, it does not make us as Christians doormats. Mm-hmm. It, it does not mean that, that we are not folks who stand up for ourselves. It does not mean that we don't have standards that, or lines that we don't allow people to cross. It's just that we're not the ones who are violated. When you do something against me as a born again believer, you've done that against God. You've done that yes. against Christ. And so it's not really for me to take offense to try to pay you back. That Again, to what Bishop Jackson said, vengeance belongs to God, not to us. So the violation when we're standing in righteousness, as the word says, the violation is against God. And so ultimately, the one that's going to get you back is, is the one that doesn't sleep and doesn't slumber. Uh, but but still to that point, we're, we're not anybody's doormat. We're not to just lay down and you you bowl me over. We, we see Christ took some very strong stances. We even see further in the New Testament where uh, you had to talk about uh, accountability, where you had believers standing up to believers, like when Paul withstood Peter to his face. So we got to be accountable whenever we're, we're showing favoritism. We're not treating people fairly or justly. But I, I did want to make sure, because when you said the eye for an eye, um, when we correctly understand that text, it's talking about that that whatever is done should be balanced. And so you 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 uh, you injured my my cattle, and I'm gonna come kill all your children. That's that's just not even just. It's not even balanced. It's not even fair. But then again, to that same point, I'm not to try to do to you what you did to me. One of the things they had in the Old Testament was the cities of refuge to where even if you had done something wrong, you could go there and that was a place of safety. And as long as you stayed there and as long as the high priest lived, you were perfectly fine, even though you had done wrong. So justice has mercy, but that still doesn't mean as Christians that uh, we're supposed to just uh, sit down and let people just run over us. Well, since you mentioned um, the perception and misperception that a lot of people have that Christians are to be doormats uh, from both, I think believers and non-believers hold uh, that myth, hold on to it very, very uh, dearly uh, sometimes. Um, in this context, in the context of what we're seeing in the nation, how should Christians respond? Because there's a criticism, there's a prevalent criticism that Christianity is docile, that we're passive, that we just sit back and let things happen and we don't say anything about it. But as you're saying, that's just not the case. So how does the Christian respond to social injustice um, in a way that's not passive? I, I can start with that one if one of the brothers want to pick up where I leave off at. Um, we, we are not reactive. We, we are responsive. And, and to me, there's a big difference. If I'm reactive, 
I, I'm going to react based upon what you do to me. If I'm going to respond, that's something that I, I think through, I process through. And what we, what we do as believers is we process whatever happens through us, through the spirit of God and through the word of God. And so we're going to respond instead of reacting. We still have flesh just like anyone else. And so when you slap my face, anger riles up in me just like it would in anyone else. But before I react, I'm going to do my absolute best to repress my natural emotion and process it through the Holy Spirit, which then allows me to think about how will this impact Christ and the kingdom? How will this impact my witness while still standing up for myself or standing up for my family, whatever the case may be? Uh, but, but I think we have to to have that restraint in us to not do something that would hurt our witness going forward. Now, with that being said, it, it does not mean that we're, we're not to protect our families, protect our homes, protect even our churches uh, when someone comes to do harm to the, to the building. But what we, what we stand on uh, as being born again believers is that when offense comes our way before we react, we're gonna process it through the Holy Spirit and give a response that meets whatever's coming our way, but it's going to also honor God in the way we carry and conduct ourselves. I might add to that, um, Dr. Barr, that I think it's so important that we begin to understand that in that response, that that response, as, as particularly for those of us who are in leadership, um, we're pastors, we're um, executive, um, mm -hmm. executives who oversee multiple churches and, um, and also have responsibilities to our local family and our local community, I think it becomes so important in our response that we don't become so tunnel vision that we forget that there is a greater um, um, work that must be done here. Um, right now, the world is flailing, um, specifically as relates to um, um, the situation with um, uh, Mr. Floyd and what happened there in Minneapolis. And, and, and as we should be, we're um, enraged, we're angry about that. Uh, but I think there's important for us to understand that in our response, it must be far more inclusive than what just happened in Minneapolis. Um, in our local communities, right here in Spartanburg last weekend or weekend before last, um, two young men were, were killed who were at a gathering in Union County, right down the street from where I live. Um, and that has to be factored in. A young man, 30 years of age, who was a Black Lives Matter activist right there um, in Gaffney, South Carolina, which is my hometown, um, was gunned down, um, apparently from what was him swiping a car. And these, these crimes were, 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 were enacted or that were carried out at the hands of people who look like them. And while we can't make this, um, uh, we, we gotta make sure that we're inclusive on this platform, that we begin to address um, the social ears as relates to us as a national body, but also those that may even be more specific to our communities and others who look like us to hold them accountable too, to say, hey, We've got to also make sure that as we are in, as we're enraged about um, Mr. Floyd and what happened there and what happened in Georgia with um, Ahmad and so many others across the nation, that we don't forget the very things that's happening right now in our backyards that sometimes goes unspoken because it just doesn't have the same national platform or the same visibility as this situation did. Because whether we see it or not, is still just as bad. We have to factor all that into um, our response and not allow our response just to be based on the hype of what people see as a hot topic right now, but on what we see as the bigger picture of what needs to be addressed in our communities with the people that we lead. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I want to add a, a little bit, a, 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 another perspective in, uh, because of the situation that happened with Mr. Floyd. Um, first of all, I do want to say that um, being humble and being meek does not mean that we're weak. Amen. Um, and it does not mean that we don't respond uh, two things. We, as Christians, we do respond. Jesus responded uh, to things that happened while he met, walked on the face of the earth. And, and so as, as Christians, and people may say that, I think it was a Karl Marx that said that Christianity is the opiate of the people, um, you know, but it is not. Being a Christian means that, that I have authority in the land the authority that is given to me by Jesus Christ, and that I not only speak against motherless and fatherless, injustices of motherless and fatherless children and feeding the hungry and clothing and naked, <laughs> that I do respond to, to injustice, uh, killings, unjust killings, uh, unjust killings. But the point that, that, that really, bothers me about what's what has happened and what has sparked all of this uh, is that yes we must respond to the killings in our community we have a lot of work to do uh, but we're also dealing with systemic injustice amen leveled against um, for us African Americans in particular but we say black and brown people because it's you know the Indian Americans what have you uh, by the larger society and that's what has sparked all of this. And uh, the church has a responsibility to speak and we must speak. And it's not just black and brown people who must speak. Thank God for what we've seen yeah. um, um, over the last few days with different mayors, police chiefs speaking out. But I'm still troubled by the silence of my Caucasian brothers and sisters uh, to the injustice that is still being leveled at us, that started by bringing us here as slaves, continued during the Jim Crow era, uh, continued, you know, civil rights, the civil rights movement fought against it. Some things were changed, but it has just continued. And it's like the church is like, this is, okay, Jesus is going to handle this. You all pray. You know, trust the Lord, and he's going to do this. You know, don't rise up. No, we have to respond. We have to, we have to bring the scriptures to bear, and we have to challenge our brothers and our sisters who are silent mm -hmm. because it does make us seem like we're, we're docile. It makes us seem like we, we are doormat when we don't say anything and we don't do anything. And some people would want us to be that way, but we can't be that way. And even though we deal with, we have to deal with what's happening, the black on black crime, this is a different monster that's mm -hmm. been in, in this society since the beginning of America. Mm -hmm. And before it has to be dealt with. And the church has to deal with it because the church, the church is complicit in this matter. From slavery up until today, the church is complicit in this. Mm -hmm. The church has been silent. 
the church leaders own slaves. Mm -hmm. You know, the, and it's it's Christians that are that are that are that are help making these laws that that keep things in place and that does not want to challenge um, the things that are going on in society. Maybe people don't know what to say, but they need to say something other than agreeing with the status quo. And Bishop, that, that leads me to my next question then. So what does the white church do? Because I think personally, one thing that I've seen is that a lot of well-meaning white people want to do something. They say, what can I do? What can, you know, I want to help. I want to help in some way. Um, what do white Christians do in this moment? What do we tell them to do? Well, first of all, you need to, you need to get an understanding of what it is to walk in my shoes. Because if you don't have an under, try to talk with me to get an understanding of what it is to walk in my shoes, well, I can share with you what it's been like to live in, in America as a black man and talk about some things that my, my father, my grandfather, people have shared with me, other people have shared. If, we don't, if you don't understand that, you have no compassion, no real compassion. And to go out and riot is not necessarily the answer. But I believe that when, when we hear people with, with, with who have platforms say, we're sorry for what has happened. We own what our people have done in America. We own the injustices that have been leveled against African-Americans and other people who are oppressed and marginalized, we own what we do. We've lived in privilege. And sometimes when people hear that we're privileged, they get offended, but mm -hmm. we have to move past, they have to move past that. To whom much is given, much is required. And it's going to take accepting the challenges, accepting, accepting what we say, listening to us, as we speak the truth in love from the experiences that we've had and bring the scriptures to bear on this, because this, 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 this thing, and I shouldn't talk all, do all of the talk, this thing has opened up so many other things. Because when you look at the exodus of young black men from the Christian church, and, and you look at this and they're saying that the church is not relevant, It's because the church is not dealing with the issues that they're facing. It's a, that's a big part of this matter. The church is not dealing with it. And, and the church, Christians, white Christians especially, because we've been talking about this. You know, maybe we have gotten a little silent after the civil rights movement, but we've been dealing with this from our pulpits. Our brothers and sisters have to stand with us and, and, and let's talk about this. Let's make this a national platform where the church takes the lead, where the Christian church, who's been given the authority of Jesus Christ and who are supposed to be witnesses to the world, takes the lead in saying, we've been wrong. Please forgive us and let's work together so that we can make some changes in this society. Amen. I, if, if I can, I want to jump in on that as well uh, in asking what can our Caucasian brothers and sisters do, um, I would tell them to, to approach 
um, the issues in the African-American community like a, like a researcher would. One of the things a researcher has to do is they have to put their biases on the floor. They, they have to acknowledge some biases they come in with. And the reason why I say that is I think it would help a lot of our Caucasian brothers and sisters to connect with us without the guilt. I, I think some Caucasians can't connect with us because they feel guilty for everything their foreparents did. We don't want you to make up for what they did. We just want you to acknowledge what they did and let's work forward towards something to make things better. Um, when you can't empathize with my shoes and with my life and with my challenges that you've never seen and never experienced, it's going to be hard for you to really identify with the pain that I talk about. And I, I want to say something maybe a little bit later about, about rioting because I've, I've got a different view on, on rioting. I was having a conversation with a Caucasian brother on Facebook the other day, and um, this is what he said to me. He said, um, uh, many times we talk about slavery and we talk about the big, bad white man. This, this was a very ignorant statement. Let me go ahead and say that before I, before I say it, what it was. He said, uh, we always talk about slavery and the big, bad white man. Well, black people had slaves too. And, you know, very simplistically, I simply responded, is this the first time you've ever seen the, uh, the abuse become the abuser? Mm. That just because somebody duplicates something they see someone else do doesn't mean that it's right. And it is commonplace for people who've been abused to then become an abuser themselves. I'm in no way validating slavery for anybody, whether it was white with black slaves or white with white slaves, whatever it was, slavery was wrong. But I think if our white brothers and sisters can put the guilt to the side, because if you come feeling guilty, you're going to be defensive. And you're going to look at ways to kind of dismiss the argument, minimize the argument so it doesn't sound so bad. No, it's as ugly as it sounds. It's as wicked as it sounds. When you hear about our foreparents, our foremothers being raped in front of their families and children being ripped from their parents' hands, that's ugly. And that's the part I think some of our Caucasian brothers and sisters don't want to deal with. That was, that was wrong. It was dead wrong. But if you come defensive and you're, you're afraid to admit and just to call a space, probably not right lingo there, to call things what they really are, then it's going to be difficult for you to identify with my pain. So that would be my recommendation is put your biases on the table, what you think and what you feel, and then come in and don't feel guilty because you may not have done some, you may have done some stuff since then, but, but you weren't here in 1920. You didn't do that. So don't come so much with the guilt, but come with your biases on the table. And, and as, as the scripture says, if I can say it this way, and learn of me, learn of African-Americans, learn what it feels like to get stopped for no reason. Learn what it feels like to have a, have a conversation with my 19-year-old son saying, son, if they ever pull you over, sit still, put your hands on the steering wheel, don't move. And when, you, when they ask you for your ID, tell them, sir, I'm going to reach and get my ID. How many Caucasians have to have that? And it's difficult, excuse my passion, it's difficult to really explain to somebody who's never walked a day in my sandals, much less my shoes. And I'll get off because I'm angry. Don't feel bad about your passion. <laughs> That's what we need. That's good. I, I, must, I must jump in here too. Um, I hear what you guys are saying and I totally agree with that. And I just had to jot down a couple of things to just make sure I didn't lose my train of thought. Um, but I, I think that when you, you talk about what can um, white America do, what can, um, what can be the response of, of, of others who are not, who don't necessarily look like us in this, in this regard, we, we have to take it further than, than, than what they say. 
um, there have been many platforms where they have offered apologies for, for the injustices of slavery and that kind of stuff, but yet they still continue to vote and to elect leaders and others um, who, who, who exemplify or who are modeling a behavior um, mm -hmm. that contradicts what they say they are sorry for. Yeah. And so I think that it comes a point where what we say we're sorry for, we have to follow through with that in how we vote and how, and, and, and how we address issues that are relevant to people. And, and I'm going to say this and, I, and I'll leave it alone. I remember um, my mother who is now going on to be with the Lord. I remember when she was involved in a car wreck and they put her in a wheelchair. Um, now I by my other profession, have done a lot of work around um, um, social services and social justice and that kind of stuff. But, um, but when my mom was in that wheelchair and trying to maneuver through stores and trying to get her from one floor to the other floor, trying to find a restroom that she could actually use, that she could transfer from her chair to, um, to be able to utilize the facilities, it became a very different perspective for me when I was dealing with someone who was now dealing with um, American with Disability Acts kind of stuff. And so as a result of my new angle or my new perspective of having to daily deal with someone who had a disability that required accommodations, my perspective began to change on what it means to be handicapped in America, what it means to be in a wheelchair trying to maneuver through a store or what have you. In the same way, I believe that in order for people to really begin to understand where I'm coming from, they have to spend time with me to see it from the perspective or the angle of where I'm coming from, and then begin to act in ways that speak to your understanding of my plight. Because for you to say I'm sorry, and then for you to go back to your, your, your usual way, and for the numbers to indicate that you're still voting the same way, that you're still electing the same people with the same mentality, the same mindsets, or saying nothing or what have you, then you're not helping me. So all of that has to be factored in. So if you really wanna help, then you have to not only say you're sorry, but you have to demonstrate some type of remorse in how you proceed, how you move forward and how you do what you do to begin to balance the scale a little better than what it is. And in my mind, that includes all the things that have been spoken here. Um, from us making sure that we hold each other accountable to us holding them accountable. I feel like- May I add something to that? Um, because when, when you study biblical justice or social justice, part of the part of what you study is are the things that you do to make things right. Yes. And whoever's done the wrong has to do something to make things right. Yes. When a person commits crime, many times they have to pay restitution. They may go to jail, but they also may have to pay restitution. They have to do some things to make things right. Um, Isaiah 1 and 17, and this is what has to take place, says, learn to do good. It's a process because it goes back to what you were saying, Dr. Barr. You come to the table with biases. If you don't lay those biases aside, you'll never learn to do good or seek justice, it goes on to say, and it says correct oppression. So it's not just saying I'm sorry. It's doing the works of repentance, you know, whatever it is that needs to take place from those, from people of power and privilege who've benefited from the wrongs that have been leveled at people of all, of, of, of black and brown colors, of ethnic groups in, in America. And you know what? Our country did something for Japanese Americans. 
tangible. You know, I'm not asking for what, 40 acres and a mule. I'm not going back to the farm, but what are you doing? What are you doing tangible? You know, to, to show that you want to correct the wrongs that have been leveled at us. So I agree with you. I just wanted to add that because the scripture does it. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. So, yeah, stop going to the voting booth and, and putting these same people in, in power. Let's change some laws. Let's make sure that people are treated, are treated fairly. And if you're going to give one person mercy, extend it to the other person. Amen. Amen. No, not just because you have money. The Bible says in James, it says, do not show partiality. If a rich person comes into a room and we can't, you know, we have to stop pigeonholing the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Only talking about when rich people, talking about rich people coming into a room, you know, don't show him partiality and, and treat the poor person with, with uh, less favor. You should really show more respect to the poorer person because the rich people get favors all of the time. So. Mm -hmm. Correcting the scales of injustice. God hates the false balances. He hates the partiality that's shown. And then we have to be careful too that we don't show partiality among ourselves. So yeah, do something. I feel like that's a great segue into another question though. How do we sufficiently deal with racism in the church? When I say in the church, I mean in the body because you talked about voting. I mean, we've seen, we saw, I think probably one of the most more stark examples of how racism is still prevalent in the body with our current administration and those who supported that current administration and continue to support that current administration. So how do we deal with it when our brothers and sisters in Christ are the same people per perpetuating the, the disparities and benefiting from them and have no incentive to really change them? I think you made a key um, statement there when you said incentive. I think that sometimes um, it requires that that we, we are made uncomfortable, that we are held accountable. The thing that we've been saying throughout this whole dialogue is that accountability is so important that, that, that there is sometimes a systemic racism. And when, and when you talk about systems, when you talk about systemic racism, sometimes people don't personalize that because they don't think beyond themselves. Well, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this. When the reality is when you're operating within a system that is perpetuating that, you are still doing that because the system will respond to what we do. And so if we're gonna to begin to talk about that again, we've gotta to begin to, to, to take seriously our, our need to make sure that, that we are preaching a balanced gospel, but that in preaching and teaching that balanced gospel, even in the church, that we are holding each other accountable because a lot of times we're, we're not saying anything, we're not doing anything. And we're just letting it be when the reality is, if, if it's going to be different, then I've got to begin to do something different. And we've got to empower people to know that your voice matters, that you've got to begin to exercise your rights. You've got to begin to take it more seriously and do what you've got to do. Even for those who may be in a situation where they can't vote because of uh, past ills or whatever, they still have a part they can play. They still can, can take people to the poll. They still can encourage those who have those rights to exercise those rights. So we can 
make sure that we're doing our part to make sure that we're impacting not just the church, but that we're impacting society. Because if we keep what we do inside the four walls, then we lose the real meaning of what the church is because the church was never intended to be brick and mortar. The church is all about us. We are the church. So wherever I go, however I conduct myself, I am a representative of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have to make sure that when I go forward, that I'm standing on what I know to be the truth and making sure that those who come around me are also being held accountable for that same truth. I, I would add to that and say, we, we've got to be careful about politicizing the scriptures. Um, I think it's dangerous when you take the scripture to use it for your own gain, to try to give someone an advantage that you like someone that you're for. And I think you can fully support someone without uh, spiritualizing that person, especially in those instances where you're talking about people who don't even acknowledge Jesus, that don't even acknowledge God. Uh, and then we're gonna spiritualize them in our politics. Uh, that's something that we have to stop. We have to stop that immediately, who you're for as well as who you're against. You don't have to demonize people as well, but that's one place I think that's gotten our, our our churches divided is when we want to support someone, we'll use the scriptures to support them, even if they don't live based upon the very scriptures that we're quoting. And then the other issue is there are some segments of the body of Christ that have compartmentalized sin, and these sins are not so bad. These sins are unforgivable will run on a platform that says, let's protect life, protect life at all costs, protect life and do not allow abortion. But then you'll allow um, a three-year-old to grow up in abject poverty and be put into a position or their parents be put into a position that it'll take three lifetimes to get out of, if that's even possible. So we can't cherry pick certain scriptures and say, this one makes this one better than this one, or this one worse than this one. Sin is sin is what the scripture says. And that's why I think we need to stop politicizing people. When you can have someone say that this person is of God, and that's why you ought to vote for them. And then when you say, well, no, they're, they're, you say they're of God, but look at the evidence of their life. And, and if they're repentant and their heart is changed, then yeah, we talk about the progress. But you can't say they're just like this in scripture when you know they don't even acknowledge your God. So we got to stop politicizing the scriptures. That's, that's, that's dangerous. It's, it not only puts the person you're talking about in jeopardy, but it puts you yourself because then you're twisting the scriptures to make them say what you want them to say. Yes. And I think to add to that, Dr. Barnett, I'll be quiet. Um, uh, I, that brings us into the whole dialogue about, you know, as Christians, our platform is Christianity. You know, yeah. I don't claim to be a Republican. I don't claim to be a Democrat. No. I claim to be a Christian. Amen. And as a result of me being a Christian, I vote my convictions based on my Christian worldview. Amen. And as a result of that, sometimes it leads me to vote this way, sometimes other ways. But mm -hmm. if, if we get to a place where we say that, well, if you're a Christian, then you you must be a Republican or that that is the Christian wing, then, then we're crazy because mm -hmm. there's so many things about politics that that that's ungodly right. um, and not just from the perspective of what we see in our world but when you go to the scriptures you see 
um, how politics were, was used in many ways um, uh, to overthrow governments, to, to, to change the, 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 the nature and, and the conduct of people in such ways that was not pleasing to God. So we know that we have to make sure that we are standing on a platform that speaks to Christianity and not trying to um, coincide or align ourselves with a particular party. Amen. I totally agree with, with that. And I apologize, I, I was a little distracted. I apologize for that. Uh, but I totally agree. And, and I wanna, when we talk about our response, um, we, have to, we, have to we have to talk with our, our Caucasian brothers and sisters and, and just point out some things because I am just a firm believer that the church has done God a disservice and that whenever we, and agreeing with what you all are saying, whenever we elevate a person who is ungodly mm -hmm. and we say that that person is God's answer for America, mm. we do that person a disservice. We don't really care about that person's soul. Um, and where, where people should be, um, trying to, where believers should be sharing the gospel message and trying to win that person to Jesus Christ so that that person really knows Christ. Whenever you put them in that place that they're God's answer, they don't need to know Christ because they already know him. They don't need to repent for anything because they never do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. They don't need to ask for forgiveness because they try not to bother and, and you know, do wrong, wrong to people. And so, We've done the Lord a great disservice, and we need to be pointing these things out. There's no way for one part of the body of Christ to be hurting the way one part of the body is really hurting, and people, the other part of the body does not care, mm. and continue to do things that demonstrate that you do not care about us. You don't care whether our young black boys are being drawn to Islam or the Pan-Africanism, or other things. You don't care. If you cared, then you would do something to change what you're doing in society, to help us, help people understand that Christianity is not a white man's religion. It is a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ that changes hearts. I go back to what I said earlier. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We, as Bishop Smith said, we should be upholding a Christian standard, mm -hmm. not a political standard, you know, not a personal preference standard. And I hope I'm not going off subject, but you know, when we, a, a lot of people have this concept that they're just good people, but Jesus said, there's none good but the Father. Mm -hmm. You gotta be born again. You gotta be, and he said to that rich young ruler, go sell all you have Give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. You have eternal life. And I mean, I've quoted it all right. But think about that. That great challenge that that young man had. And he walked away sorrowing because he trusted in his riches. He trusted in his position of privilege and power. And so the Lord challenges us. You know, we got to come to him. He has to change us. We have to push us. And we're not, and, and I believe these are some of the things we need to be saying. If we're not elevating the Lord's standard, then we're doing God a disservice. We're doing the body of Christ a disservice. We're doing the world a disservice mm -hmm. because the world looks at the church. The world is looking at us and the world is judging us and they see 
what's happening and they see how <clears throat> they, they, see, they see what certain groups have done in America in the name of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. that the world knows is not right. So kind of picking up where we left off, you know, as we're dealing with the racism inside of the church, we still have people, a lot of, a lot of black Christians who are angry, just as angry as anybody else. Uh, Bishop Smith, you talked about people who are that enraging, that enrage inside of us or that rage inside of us where people are enraged and they're angry. There's, you know, there's not just George Floyd. There's been, gosh, Ahmaud Arbery. There's been the whole Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper situation the same day. There's Breonna Taylor, there's Stefan Clark, there's Laquan McDonald, there's Tamir mm -hmm. Rice, and the list goes on. What do we do with that anger? Because it, it's burning and it's, it's, it's perpetual and it's consistent and it keeps happening. It just keeps happening. Well, I think one of the things that we do, we're, we're already doing it. That is, we, we've got to keep this conversation alive. And, and I use that word rather loosely because when we say conversation, people often um, relegate that to just talking. But I'm, I'm saying that we, when I use the word conversation, I'm thinking in terms of us making sure that we're keeping before the people or putting their feet to the fire, as it were, to make sure that we begin to demonstrate that we are moving toward doing things differently, um, seeing legislature, seeing things happen that's going to speak to um, life becoming better for everybody, that there, that there is justice for all and not just for a few. And I think that's just so important for us to begin to understand that this conversation has got to continue to take place. We've got to keep having these conversations. And we also have to keep monitoring what people are doing, um, not what they're saying, but what they are doing. Because if, if we just let people get away with rhetoric, it, 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 boils, up being, it boils down to being nothing. We end up um, just having a conversation when the conversation must lead to action. Exactly. I, I I just want to say I'm angry. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I may deal with my anger different from the way other people deal with their anger. You know, and I may not show it. You know, I'm not a cursing man. If I were a cursing man, I'd curse right now. You know, yeah. if, I, if I were a fighting man, you know, and I think, I think, the body of Christ, I think our people need to see our humanity, the realness of us as leaders, and yes. know that, you know, yeah, we want to respond. I mean, and I'm, this will be aired, and please air this. I can't watch, I, it was difficult for me to watch Roots, because when I watch those kind of movies, it makes me want to go out and get a white person and, and beat them up or do something. That's not Christ's way. That's not the way that Christ would want me to be. And so, or want us to be. And so even though I'm angry, the Bible does not tell us we cannot be angry. Right. The Bible right. says, be angry, but do Amen. not sin. Amen. And so we can't, we can't try to repress people's anger. We have to help them funnel that anger into something that's productive. Yes. So let's not just be angry because these people have died. And let's not even just be angry at our, at the perpetrators of the crime and at the system, let's begin to fun, channel some of that anger to do something productive and positive in our communities with our people um, as we fight for justice, 
but also to help people be able to live in a society and be productive, uh, be productive citizens, to be able to uh, compete in society. There's so many things that, that can be done in our communities that, that we need to be taking some of this anger that we have and channeling it, channeling it so that we can help bring change in our own communities. Yes. Amen. So what, what is your take then, or your takes on rioting and looting? You know, the, it, it is anger. It is an outpouring of anger, obviously. What are your thoughts about that? I'll say this, and then I'll let my brothers um, speak to the, um, the more rational <laughs> um, diplomatic side of it, if they will. Um, I, I think Martin Luther King said it well when he said that rioting um, is the response of the unheard. And so when people feel that they are not being heard, they begin to act out in ways. And, and, it's, and it's nothing uncommon. It happens in our homes. If all of us, well, uh, the three of us have raised children and we know what it's like to tell a child no and they feel they have no power and they throw a tantrum. Um, they might, you know, they, they may not be kicking the screen in the middle of the floor, but it's still a tantrum. And I think in the same way, we're seeing a lot of that response in what's happening now. I can't sit here as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that it is right for anybody to, to violate anybody else's rights. I, I'm never gonna sit here and tell you that, but I'm not gonna sit here also and tell you that I don't understand some of the outbursts that we see happening in our communities and our world right now. And so if we're gonna start talking about it, we gotta talk about it from two different angles. And that is, I've gotta make sure I make it very clear that looting is, is, is not right. Um, Rioting in and of itself is not going to bring about um, 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 justice, but at the same time, I cannot, as a leader, um, ignore the, the the word or the cry that is coming from the people that are engaged in these activities. As a leader, I would hope to be able to get an audience with them at some point and begin to help them to channel that anger, to channel um, that frustration into more productivity. But at the same time, I can't very well sit here and say that, well, I don't understand why they're doing that or they shouldn't be acting like that when the reality is I get it. I also know there's a better way, but I get it. And I'll, I'll leave it right there because I don't want to, I don't want to become un, un, un indignified or undignified. <laughs> I don't, Personally, I don't like to see it, but that's okay. I get it. I understand. I want to pick up the ball right where you left it on the forty-yard line. Um, <laughs> th that was one of the conversations I was having internally today. What what is the voice of rioting saying? It's it's saying something, um, and I think it's easy just to look at. You know, it's senseless, you're tearing up your own communities, and that's valid, that's all valid. But, but to, to the point that Bishop Smith was making, that is a voice that feels unheard and unvalidated to the degree that I'll tear up my own stuff to show you how angry and upset I am. I think looting and rioting, and, and we realize some of the stuff is propaganda, some of it is just a setup to perpetuate stuff and people being uh, pushed in the right direction uh, to, to do things they wouldn't normally do. But I still think it's a voice that's saying, I'm so upset and I'm so angry that this is the only way I can show you. It's, it's, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not okaying it. Um, but I think it's, it's somewhat a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Talking hasn't changed anything. 
Um, picketing in the street hasn't changed any, anything. We voted and it doesn't seem to have changed a whole lot. And so this is the, the one way, excuse me, this is the one way I know I can hurt the man is to hurt him in his money. And if I go in and I tear up all of their stores and I bust out all their windows, that's gonna hurt the man and the man's gonna feel what I feel. I think it's wrong. I don't think we should do those things, but I do think that that, that rioting, riotingness has a, has a voice and that voice is saying, I'm hurt, I'm wounded and you won't take your foot off my neck. And this is the only way I can show you how upset I am. Now, to, to a point that was being made earlier, one of the most violent things we, we have, we all ride it every day, that's a car. Car runs off of violence. It runs off of explosions and fire and stuff being pushed and forced, but it's a controlled violence. And so I think it's good for us to have the anger. I think it's good for us to have this fire and this passion but we've got to have good leaders that can channel it and not ones that throw gasoline on it and, and pit one against the other. That, that's the, one of the most effective styles of communism leadership is to pit one against the other. And when you pit one against the other, everybody loses except the dictator on top. And so we just got to make sure we channel that anger, channel, keep having these conversations, get into places where pockets, where people need to be heard, make sure voices are heard, make sure we're communicating the things we should be doing. But I think if we channel and say, hey, for example, there's a March uh, schedule for next Saturday here in Raleigh. I plan to be there. Uh, I think we can't just talk. We got to get out there and get amongst the people and show them that we care and listen to what's being said because we can learn from it. But I do think the rioting uh, is, is, a, is an outcry for help and assistance. I agree with the both of you. And I'm probably, probably the calmest person on this platform. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> but I totally agree. And, and a, a different, a little different example. Um, when I was maybe 10, 11 years old, we had a dog that was a really peaceful, calm dog. And for whatever reason, I was being mischievous and I kept hitting that dog. And that dog tried to bite me eventually. You can't keep people down. You can't keep beating people down, oppressing people and expect them not to respond. I get it too. I get it too. I understand why people are rioting. They're angry, they've been repressed. We have been repressed in this. A few people are allowed to make it. Mm -hmm. and we need to say that, that needs to be said. A few people are allowed to make it. We have not addressed what we have known in our society and in black culture for many, 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 many years that our black women can have easier access to things than black men. Mm. And we, that's ever since I was a child, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. Why? It's like this thing is, you know, a, it's against black men. And we're tired of being oppressed, and people are seeing this. And the only way they, and a guy said this on television the other night. You, he said to the uh, reporter, We got your attention, didn't we? Mm. We've been saying this and nobody is paying attention. We've seen this over and over and over again and nobody is paying attention. 
Now people are paying attention. More people are paying attention. More people are speaking out. Yeah, so we have to keep this going and hold people accountable. I'm glad you talked about black men because I want to talk about young black men. We mentioned that a little earlier. Uh, Pan-Africanism, Nation of Islam, uh, people who are becoming Hebrew Israelites, black men, young black men um, mm -hmm. are leaving mainstream Christianity, looking for belief systems that seemingly elevate black power or seemingly elevate the black experience. How do we reach those young men who are dissatisfied with the church, who do believe that it is the white man's religion, and who still believe that we're being too docile, that we're not out there with them on the front lines? I'd like to speak to that. Um, as, as the men on here know, um, uh, part of my, my many things that I do, I also work for Department of Corrections and um, I um, am a program coordinator there where I work with a lot of those very men that you're talking about. And um, I, I've been very privileged to be able to, to gain an audience with many of them from different angles. Um, this is not a plug for anything else because I can't um, be a representative of any anything but New Hope Christian Church on this platform. Um, but I've been privileged to be able to work with, with, with men of many different backgrounds, many men who have converted from Christianity to Islam and, and other aspects um, in different um, five percenters and others who are have taken on um, different um, perspectives and religions as it relates to um, their worldview now. Um, and I think that the one thing that has been to my advantage in getting audiences with those people is for me to come to a place to where I am consistent in how I demonstrate who I am as a man of God, not in what I say, not in, in wearing some, some badge or, or, or my collar or any of those things, but where I become consistent, no matter what the opposition is, no matter all, even though I know that when this video airs, when, when, this, when this conversation is put out there, that there will be people that will come against us because of our stance, but it doesn't change the fact that I have to be consistent in what I know to be my truth. I have to walk in that, I have to teach it, I have to preach it, and I have to demonstrate it how I carry out my everyday activities. And I believe that we win people back, we win people to the things of God when we become men who don't just talk it, but men who walk it. And, and in walking it, empowering them to know that there is a better way. And speaking to the stuff that we're speaking to now, because I think one of the things that has angered the men and the black men, particularly in churches, is that we 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 preached and taught forgiveness, but we but we haven't done as good a job as helping us to understand how to be angry and sin not. What does that mean? What does it mean to be angry and not sin? What does it mean um, um, to take on on these hard issues and, and still maintain your Christian platform. And again, that gets back to helping people to understand what it means to operate with a Christian lens or a Christian worldview that so often goes out the window the minute we walk outside the church walls. And so we've got to learn how to incorporate that in a way. And I think that our transparency tonight um, will, will help with some of that. But I think it's important that we begin to empower people to know how to channel that. Um, Bishop Jackson said it earlier, how to channel that in a way that leads us to greater productivity. And that is the key word is greater productivity, because the reason the world is listening right now is because their economics is being impacted. And when economics is being impacted, we get their attention. And that leads into a whole lot of other things I don't have the liberty to talk about tonight. But again, you know, we, we got to keep this conversation going. I think um, in addition uh, to, to what you said, Bishop Smith, um, 
as we develop as we develop these relationships, and we know that relationship is very important in evangelism and winning yes. people to Christ. Relationship as we develop the relationships, speaking truth. Yes, because there's a lot of error, and and in uh, in some of the belief systems that people are going to, um, and we need to be able to address it intelligently, intellectually and intelligently, and be able to provide proofs of these things. Um, I mean, when you look at Christianity and you see where it started and you meet Philip in Acts, who is the Ethiopian eunuch, and you see the seed of Christianity and you see the spread of Christianity in North Africa, you know, in the early days, and you see African theologians and the contributions that they've made to Christianity, which of course, many of our Western uh, Caucasian theologians may not have not acknowledged. Of course, certain names were mentioned, but if you didn't do the research or study, you didn't know that they were African or, or of African descent. And, and, and I think that's a part of that, of that process because um, if, if you've been told that this is a white man's religion and it is not relevant and whatever, you don't see the contributions of your own people uh, to, to the foundations of this faith and the, and, 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 and the Christian principles and their different creeds and, and the different councils. There, there's a whole lot about Christianity that a lot of people just don't know because they're not in those arenas to study them. We need to bring this in also into our conversation um, and help people see and understand who, what we've contributed and the foundations of Christianity. And the bottom line is we do want people um, to enter eternally into heaven and, and, and to live eternally with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture does say, Jesus is the only way. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. You know, and, and, and so we have to do our best in our relationships, developing these relationships with them and in conversations to help them come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth will make you free. I'll add one more thing to that. I, I think we've got to do a better job too of, of kind of uh, defeminizing the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we do a lot that empowers women uh, since, since the greater majority of most of our churches is female. Uh, but I think we need to do a better job of being inclusive of men uh, and showing that, hey, you can be a manly as man as you want to be and be a Christian uh, and not making men feel like they've got to be inferior or tone down their manliness. Uh, I think we've got to create more opportunities for men to serve. Um, you know, you go to our average Baptist church, if you speak of the missionary ministry, it's going to more than likely be primarily, if not all women. And we've got to really bring masculinity back to the forefront. I think those are two things that our African-American men are turned off by, by the church is one, the, the feminine glare of the church. And then secondly, there's not a lot of pro-blackness except, you know, once a year during Black History Month. And we got a lot to be proud of. I mean, I recommend reading uh, Africa in the Bible. Great book, great read. And again, many of our Anglo-Saxon theologians um, won't really talk about that book, won't talk about some of the facts in that book. And that's one of the things I love about studying is uh, even if you don't like someone's point of view, you can't overturn facts. Facts are just that, they're facts. 
Uh, but then also when you got that information, you yourself feel empowered. So when you have a conversation with someone who is less enlightened and they're talking about, maybe they're downplaying uh, black people and you can start to tell them things like, well, you know, the Bible is full of black people. Did you know that Bath Bathsheba was black? Can you, can you, David, the most influ influential king in all of the Old Testament, you know, he was married to a black woman or a woman with black lineage. But if we can start to show our blackness and have more and more conversations about how God used people, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Simon of Cyrene and how he carried the cross. There's a whole lot more blackness in the Bible than Simon of Cyrene. So mm -hmm. I think those are two things that we can start to do to really engage more with men is, is to, to, to tone down. I, I realize you, 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 you kind of placate to the low hanging fruit and we want to keep the women happy. And so we do a lot of things and, and conducting a lot of ways that I think would make women feel safe and um, engaged. And sometimes I think we do that at the expense of the men. And I think we can infuse the church with a whole lot more of our heritage because we've got a beautiful, rich heritage throughout the Bible from beginning to the absolute end. And so those are some things I think we can do immediately to start uh, keeping our brothers more connected to Christianity. Because I believe as Bishop said that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Amen. Dr. Boy, I think that um, uh, you, you, you help us to understand why this conversation must keep going because you just opened up a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother angle of dialogue that can leave us here for days. Um, but I think that um, everything has been spoken and, and I think that and I just want to add to that. Um, when you just start looking at geography, Bishop, you mentioned it, but you didn't yeah. quite say that word. But okay. if you just look at geography, um, when you start talking about planting and, and tracing the Bible, um, um, you, you're just not going to be able to um, overlook or, or deny that so much of the Christian faith Yes. It's steeped in 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 Africanism, yes. um, and and it's just it's it's just it's not it's not up for debate. Is if you're going to look at it from the perspective of, of what even you say is truth, then you've got to embrace those that kind of stuff. <laughs> I just want to throw this in, Jonathan, real quick. Okay, I think another real part of this as we deal with church tradition, uh huh, yeah. is really making sure that we're faithful to Christ and we're making disciples of Christ and pointing people to Jesus Christ, not to my tradition, not to, and this is any tradition, not to, not to my family, but Christ, you know, I, I think that, I think that when we, when we do that, it's going to, this is genuine faith. This is real faith. Yeah. And, and I think that makes a difference because now when we're doing that, we're, we're actually opening up to the power of the Holy Spirit who comes in and transforms people's lives and minds and make them like him. What do you say to the believer who may be struggling or wrestling with guilt over being angry? Because we talked about righteous anger. We talked about how the Bible never says you can't be angry. You're just not to sin in your anger. Um, but there might be believers who are feeling this emotion, this intense emotion, but feel bad because they feel like they're not supposed to be angry. How do you coach them through all this, especially when there's a lot to be angry about? I, I would take them to Genesis 3. Okay. When, when uh, uh, Adam is hiding from God and he says, I hid because I was naked. <laughs> 
And God said, who told you you were naked? Who, who told you there was something wrong with the way you are? Uh, so so who, who, who told us that Christians aren't supposed to get angry? I mean, I, I can't find that in scripture where it tells us not to have malice, but that's hatred. That's, that's not anger. Um, and so I, I, I'll, I'll say it this way. We serve an emotional God. Our, our God exhibit emotion. And even when we look at the human nature of God in Christ, Jesus cried, he, 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 he celebrated, he, he got hungry, full of emotions, just like us. So I would say to any believer that's watching this today, tonight, or whenever they may be watching it, um, that it's, it's, it's good to have anger. That means you're alive. That means you're full, the full senses seem to be working. And so anger, again, is one of those things that, that God can use or life can use to motivate you to do things that without it, you couldn't do. You hear about the stories of, of, of maybe a woman who has a wreck and the car is on a loved one and they somehow get the strength to push it off. Well, they didn't push it off just out of love. They got upset, they got angry and they pushed it. And so it's okay to be angry, but don't let the angry, don't let the anger be your motivation. Don't let it be what, what pulls you for. You can let it push you, but don't let it pull you into stuff that you don't need to be in. So for anybody watching tonight who's angry, God bless you. You are as human as you can be. And anger is okay. But again, don't let anger pull you into stuff. I had uh, one of my professors tell me young in my Bible college days, he says that anger is one letter away from danger. So anger is, is okay as long as you can control it, but don't let the anger control you. Jesus got angry, uh, and not just when he turned over the temple. He was so disappointed sometimes as the disciples. You know, a lot of times we look at the discourse where Jesus is praying in the garden, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the God, he has a conversation with God, and the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, there's, there's a lot of argument there, what he's talking about, the human side of him not wanting to go through. But I also think he knew that these dudes are not ready. The disciples, <laughs> no father, it, I can't go yet. They're not. Peter is crazy as he's ever been, and so, and I'm, I'm making light of a serious situation. But we should, we should be able to understand that. But we're human; that we're going to have these emotions. But again, don't let it pull you. But you can let it be what pushes you. Well, Doctor Barr, I must say I am a direct descendant of Peter, so <laughs> lay off my brother. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, 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 I totally agree with what you're saying, brother. I, I, I totally agree. The Bible makes it very clear. Be angry and sin not. I mean, I think it's just how we package this thing. I was just thinking about MAD, uh, Mothers Against Drug Drivers, when we were just talking and how that whole movement was birthed out of mothers becoming angry because of the violence that was exhibited upon their families, their children, their loved ones, because of people getting behind the wheel who had been drinking. And so while they were angry, they, they took that anger and formulated a, a movement that to this day impacts us and, and, and is a voice that is still very relevant in how things are happening, specifically as relates to people drinking and getting behind the wheel and driving. Um, and we could go on and on with so many other entities that have been birthed out of anger. And so what we want to see happen with our people is that in the midst of their anger, that we can birth some things that's going to begin to hold people accountable and bring about measurable change, <laughs> measurable yeah. change that speaks to more equity in our society. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, some people say that or believe that racism is worse now than it was before, mm -hmm. thanks to the current administration. 
Um, others say, no, we're just seeing it on camera now. Um, we have multiple, we have different generations represented here. So we can all probably kind of, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from everybody a little bit. What do you think about that? Do you think that it's worse now or do you think it's just more revealed now? I think that it's important for us to understand that um, I, I guess doing research, we, we, have to, we have to qualify sometimes what we consider to be worse, what we consider to be better, what we consider to be improvement. But when we look at the, at the overall lay of the land, the, 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 the scheme of things, um, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree that we've made headway, we've made progress, we have come a long way from where we were. No one will argue that point. There are things that have happened in our society that is much better, that um, you um, as, a, as a young man have opportunities and, and things that, uh, um, that you're able to do now, privileges that you have that were fought for um, by some of our forefathers. And so I don't think anybody will argue that point. And so I don't think that it is an argument of worse or better. Um, and I think it's more of it's still present, it's, it's different. And we have to still be conscious of the fact that it's still a big part of our society. And as a result of us understanding that, we can't just be um, at ease in Zion, as the Church of Old would say, and be satisfied because we've made some advancements when we still see so many inequities. So as a result of the inequities that we see, we have to begin to speak to them in a specific way. It can't just be a blanketing uh, or generalization that says all people are this or nobody is this, but it has to be when we see stuff that is specifically going contrary to what we believe to be equity, what we believe to be equality for all men, we have to hold people accountable for that. And in holding them accountable, we have to make sure that we can measure the change be it through legislation, be it through policies, procedures, whatever it may be, that will speak to the fact that we are progressing in those areas. So yes, we've made progress, but yes, there's still so much work to be done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I guess being the oldest person on the panel, um, not too much older than Bishop Smith, but- you know, Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have made much progress. Um, because I remember as a child going to the doctor's office and seeing the, we had to sit in the colored waiting room, the white, there was a white waiting room, the colored water fountain, the white water fountain, colored restroom, white restrooms, colored restrooms, always dirty, always nasty, never cleaned. Uh, I remember as a teenager going to a meeting in some part of Mississippi because in our community, we had we had a credit union, we had different things that the, the people were doing to kind of bring the community up. And I remember that the guy who took us, he was he was a 4-H teacher in the county uh, for the black schools. Uh, we were we came back through Birmingham. It was early in the morning because apparently we left at night and we wanted breakfast. He stopped at I'm assuming Shoney's, I don't know if it was Shoney, a restaurant. He stopped at a restaurant. And um, before we got out, he said, wait a minute, don't get out. Let me go in and make sure that we can be served. And when he came back to the car, I don't know what took place in the restaurant. We, we didn't go in and eat. But he said, if you have to be born again, if you had a chance to be born again, don't be born black. As a teenager, as a teenager, and I had to be 14, 15, that really, that really hit me hard. Whatever it was said to him, you know, 
and dealing with what we were experiencing. And this is like, I'm born in 1954, 64, I was 10. So that had to be around 68, maybe 67, 68. And, and seeing these things, so I know that we've made progress. I think maybe people raise these issues because sometimes we've not kept the connection between the generations like we should have. And we've not kept telling the story. And it's, it's you know, young people, you, you, you do your own thing. There are not a lot of young people that want to sit down and talk to older people. And sometimes now there are not a lot of older people want to talk to younger people. But we need, we need this cross-generational conversation to keep going on so that people will know that we made progress. What we're seeing is where some things have become repressed. I think we're seeing it being more overt now. And it's overt because it never died. It was always there as Bishop Smith has said. Racism is interwoven in the fabric of American society, and we may as well acknowledge that. And the greater society may as well acknowledge it. And until people's hearts change, the issues are not going to, racism is not going to, it'll never go away. And we need to acknowledge that because sin is never going to go away. It's going to always be here, but, but things can be made even better as, as, as we allow God to change our hearts. I'll add to this. Um, I, I, I think in some ways we have backed up almost as much as we've made progress. You know, there was an era where we just didn't have rights. You know, we, did, we couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. And now laws have been put in place that says that we can, but we see the disparity in the way that the law is implemented to where if you have this much affluence, um, then the law treats you this way. You have white collar crime mm -hmm. and then you have black collar crime. So uh, a famous person like a Martha Stewart could get inside a trading that 200,000 PRs, that's a, that's a stretch, hundreds of people lost their job and she made you know some money off of that. And she could come right back into society and pick up where she left off at and not miss a thing and then you can have someone do something that's equally bad, uh, like, like we've seen some of our NFL players do some violent things to their wives and they're banned for life. Or you can even have somebody like a Colin Kaepernick who just took a legal stand and look at how he's banished for life. I look at Robert Downey Jr. He can be Iron Man, he was a former crackhead. And so we see the disparity in how we're, how we're treated. And that's one of the things I think that's frustrating for a lot of people and for me as well, is now we have all these laws in place, but they're not enforced the same. You can have, uh, like we had with, with, with Brother George, where you, you had someone killed by a white officer, and then some time goes by, and then eventually he gets let go of. And sometimes they're not even fired. They're put on administrative leave and they're paid. And then uh, I discussed this a couple of weeks ago, uh, with Bishop Jackson, where you had this constable in Virginia who was who was struggling with a man and accidentally trying to shoot the man, he shot his six-year-old son. That man was fired and put under a $1 million bond. And so we see that, and he was black. The officer was black. So we see the disparity in, in the justice. And so that's why I would argue we have come a long ways as a society. 
But I see in many ways we are backing it up because now that there's laws in place, the law doesn't treat everybody equally. I, Lady Justice is blind, but the people who wield her hands can see well. Uh, Dr. Brown, a few weeks ago, you made this statement and it still sticks in my mind, something to the effect of justice for us does not look like justice for them. Yeah. That's the disparity. And that's what America needs to grapple with. Mm. That's why people are angry. Biblical justice is you treat everyone the same. You meet out justice across the board. You know, um, it should not be a difference. Should not be a difference. Bishop Smith, were you going to say something? No, I, I was just piggybacking off what was said, and, and I think Bishop kind of covered it there when he said it should not be a difference. I just think that we, it's it's just so many, it's, it's just that whole aspect of privilege that we have to, that we have to keep as in the forefront of this conversation and how it plays out in our society. And, and to add to that, when you start talking about racism, um, and it's particularly when you start talking about institutionalized racism, um, there are just so many legislative things and so many laws that have been placed on the book that, um, that lead to systemic oppression. And I, I hesitate to use that word, but it is so relevant in this moment, systemic oppression. When you start talking about if, if, if I've committed a crime and I've paid my debt to society, if I'm a returning citizen, how is it that my rights are not restored? How is it that you can't, that, that you're, you're blocking me still, even though I've paid my debt to society? And that gets into a whole nother conversation, but I say that to say this, is that if, again, it gets down to measurable changes that have got to be put in place for us to understand how we move forward. If we don't begin to take a spotlight and put it on how we've always done what we've done and begin to call those things that are crazy, crazy, and then begin to make some changes, then we're gonna to continue to be here. And that light has got to not only be put on the white man, it's gotta be put on all of us, on all of our institutions, that we may begin to look at how we do what we do and begin to rectify some things that we may begin to become more equitable and making sure that when we promote things that we're promoting them in such a way that speaks to justice for all. That's that's bottom line for me. <laughs> the point both of you made, I keep, I'm thinking about people that I know who've been to prison, paid their debt to society. They cannot get jobs. Right. They're just not gonna be hired. So that, that, that puts them in a, either they're gonna go back to prison by committing another crime. You know, it, it's systemic oppression. Is that the word you use? Yeah. Yes. And, and we have to see this. How, why? So because Martha Stewart is a good person, she can go right back and start all over again and continue what she was doing. And so many others, yeah. so many others right here in York County. Um, a, a person from a, a, a very wealthy family was convicted of cocaine. Well, you know, he didn't go to jail. He didn't go to jail. Convicted, but didn't go to jail, didn't go to prison. What would have happened if I had been convicted of possessing cocaine? Right. Ears. I don't have money. I don't have that kind of money. You know, and then once I get out, where do I go and find a job? a good paying job where I could yeah. take care of my family. Yeah. Where I can feel value and worth. You know, this is what America has to see. This is what's happening. This is why people are angry. 
and as we talk about marginalization, um, Jonathan, and I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up because I know we've been here for quite a while. As we talk about marginalization, even as we begin to to continue to move forward, um, you know, we get into classism, we get into you know the resources that have to that that are there for certain people that's not there for other people, mm -hmm. and I get it because I work in in many of those systems where. Um, you, you see the inequities, but yet when you go behind the scene and see the differences in the resources, um, you, you, you get a better understanding, not a justification, not an okayness, but you get a better understanding of, of, of why some of the decisions are made as they are made. So if we know that there is an inequity, then, then there's got to be somewhere again where we're legislating, where we're doing things that puts a net there that begins to create an environment where there is justice for all. And it's not to say everybody's equal, that everybody is the same, but it is to say that as society, we work toward treating mankind in a way that speaks to humanity, that speaks to them being humans and doing things that speak to helping our fellow man come along and do better. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm an employer, and, and I have a business, why, why, what would be wrong with me specializing or, or, or working harder to seek out some of those returning citizens to, to give them opportunities? What would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with me as, 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 a, as a man seeing another boy who doesn't have necessarily a father figure in his home move to a place to where I am doing stuff to help him to, um, to, to, to have um, affirmation from a paternal aspect um, even though he's not my own biological child. There's just so much more that we can say about these things, which is why um, these, these talks have got to, to continue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and Bishop Smith, like you said, we've come upon over an hour. So um, a final word from all three of you, what is the path forward? What do we do next? Continue the conversation and seek liberty and justice for all. Actively involved, actively engaged, actively seeking, which means I'm not just talking in my community, I'm talking in the larger community, I'm challenging, I'm doing what I can to make a difference uh, in the world. Amen, and I'll piggyback that and say that I think each of us needs to pray and ask God, what is my accountability to my fellow man? Am I my brother's keeper? That each of us have a duty and a responsibility inside of us to make life better for someone else. And then we need to commit to engagement with X number of things, three different causes, four different causes, five causes, whatever it may be. And then commit yourself into to engagement with that I wouldn't necessarily say a certain amount of time, but to have goals once you do connect with those key things, to have goals that you want to see achieved with those. So I think we have to take our personal accountability and say, okay, I'm going to engage myself in these ways to make a difference, to make life better for me, to make life better for my grandkids, and to make life better for my brothers and sisters around me. So personal accountability and a commitment to an X number of exercises or causes. For me, I would, I would simply just say consistency because the reality is, is that as we get further away from incidents like this that we can put our, um, our hands on, as it, as it begins to um, leave the public forum and those kinds of things, we sometimes can have a, 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 a way of getting back to 
business as usual or getting back to to um, to how we've always done it. I think there must be consistency that this this conversation and not just the conversation, but again, those measurable things um, have got to be put in place so that we begin to be consistent across the board and how we do what we do. So when the the the, the cry for George Floyd has has died down some, that there's still a cry from mankind at large that we may continue to, to see um, justice for all. All right, that was a beautiful way to wrap this up. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. This was amazing. This was great. Um, and thank you all for joining us for Top Talk. Um, there will be more conversations. Continue to have the conversations in your personal life and look out for new episodes coming soon. Thank you.